0: Hello and welcome to FinTech Insider Insights, I'm Kate Moody. In today's show, we're going to be looking at home buying and inclusivity. In the UK, the price of the average home has increased almost twice as much as the wages of the average worker over the past 50 years. And in the US, house prices shot up nearly 19% last year, up from a gain of roughly 10% in 2020. That's the steepest one-year increase in the index in more than three decades. Mortgage rates are rising, and first-time buyers represented 37% of all buyers in 2021 compared with 43% in 2020. All of this is challenging enough, however, certain demographics face even more scrutiny than others when applying for loans, trying to raise their credit scores, or getting the down payment needed to get on the property ladder at all. So today we've put together a panel of experts to discuss how to open up the home buying market to more diverse communities, and we want to explore how you do it right, how you can get it very wrong, how we can get more people on the home buying ladder, and finally, how we can make the process more inclusive all round. We'll discuss all this and more in today's show. But first, a few brief messages. Don't go anywhere. Does your product or service work for everybody? Are you unconsciously alienating some of your audience? Packed with all the handy tips and actual insight, our brand new inclusive design report has all of the information you need to embed a truly representative mindset in your organization. Head to 11FS.com forward slash inclusive design and download it today. These days, every new potential hire can feel like a high-stakes wager for your small business. You want to be 100% certain that you have access to the best qualified candidates available. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. Just add your job and the purple hiring frame to your LinkedIn profile to spread the word that you're hiring. Then use simple tools like screening questions to quickly prioritise who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the qualified candidates you want to talk to faster. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash fintech. That's linkedin.com slash fintech to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Brilliant. Let's get started. As always, I'm joined by a panel of amazing guests who can shed some light on this topic. So first off, we have a FinTech Insider debut for Laura Arce, SVP of Unidos US. Welcome to the show, Laura. Please could you tell our listeners a bit more about you and about Unidos? What is it that you guys focus on?
1: Great, certainly. Well, thank you, Kate, for inviting me to be part of this podcast. I'm really excited to have the conversation. Unidos US is the largest Latino or Hispanic civil rights organization in the United States. We were founded over 50 years ago, and our mission is to um, build a stronger America by creating opportunities for for Latinos, and we do that through policy advocacy, research, and programs across a wide range of issues. My role at Unidos US is to develop a new initiative that we're launching next year to help close the Latino homeownership gap which in the U.S. is about 25 percentage points lower than it is for white Americans. Um, Personally, I've worked in this field for my entire career. I previously worked at the Federal Housing Finance Agency during the Great Recession. That's the regulator of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which provides most of the mortgage liquidity for the U.S. mortgage market. And most recently, before joining Unidos, I worked for Wells Fargo, which is one of the largest bank lenders of mortgage credit in,
0: in the United States. So I'm really excited to be part of the conversation today. What an amazing CV. I'm super excited to to hear your perspective on things. So thank you so much for for joining us. Next up, it's a welcome return to the show for Brian Simons, president of Maxwell. Welcome back to the show, Brian. Thanks for joining us. Could you give us a quick refresh on on what Maxwell is and does, please?
2: Yeah, so I'm really happy to be back for my uh, second time. But uh, Maxwell's a leading, it's a US-based mortgage-related fintech We empower over 300 mortgage lenders, banks, credit unions with forward-looking solutions that address the entire mortgage process uh, from SaaS-based point-of-sale and processing technology to outsource solutions and secondary market trading. So kind of our comprehensive suite of services uh, allow our, our competition to stay well ahead of the larger lenders.
0: Fantastic. Well, yeah, great to have you both here. Let's dive in. So surprise, surprise! Home buying is a, a big topic right now. You know the cost of living crisis is biting globally. Inflation rates are going up. Mortgage rates are getting higher. Terms are getting shorter, and this can have you know a huge impact both on those repaying their mortgages and those also trying to get onto the home buying ladder in the first place. So lots for us to to, to dig into. But I suppose to start us off, I'd love to get your perspectives on I suppose how you see the whole home buying experience generally right now in the US i mean obviously we've got listeners from all around the world in the US and beyond so i suppose with that with that perspective in mind like how would you describe uh, the current process laura
1: yeah well certainly in in the US it's a challenging time to be a home buyer as you've noted we're seeing limited inventory of homes high housing prices and rising inflation but I'll note that it's a particularly challenging time for first time home buyers and low and moderate income home buyers. The inventory shortage that we're seeing is particularly acute on the lower price end, the sort of what we call the starter home where many people enter the, the home ownership journey. Rising inflation is making it harder to save for a down payment. And so all of those challenges are, are really adding up. I I will say, though, that the U.S. is it's a big country and, you know, we do have regional differences on home values. You see really, you know, high numbers on the West Coast and particularly parts of the East Coast, parts of the Sun Belt. Um, But there are pockets of affordability, um, largely in more the Midwest and parts of the central U.S. So it's not, you know, a full story, but I would say overall the challenges of inventory, affordability and rising interest rates have been a damper for for. All home, most home buyers, but particularly first time and low and moderate income home buyers.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think that's very important you make as well about the geographic variation. You know, um, I'm a. British southerner and my husband is a British northerner and you know, across our friendship groups we see quite different uh homes that our, our respective salaries can purchase in different parts of the country so we, we kind of have that that issue across the pond as well Brian is there anything I suppose from from where you're sat any other elements of the, the home buying experience uh, that you'd call out in this sort of initial initial view uh,
2: obviously I think home buying uh, kind of in general across the U.S. is it's quite challenging today and I think Laura's already already alluded to the to the main issues with low inventory, high home prices, increasing interest rates, but you know, the the biggest concern for us is that home ownership it remains the largest driver of generational wealth. And you got 60 million people, 60 million Americans who struggle and they can't get those traditional mortgages. And so for us I think that is becomes the biggest concern. Um, and you, when you get into the – there's the confusion and sometimes intimidation, I think, that people have when they go through the mortgage process. Because even I, who have been in the business for 26 years, most recently when I got a mortgage, I end up having to work with the loan officer to process my own loan. So if, if I, who already have deep experience in this industry – have to basically take charge of the own my own origination. I can't imagine somebody who comes from a from a and maybe even a challenged economic background. They don't have the resources or knowledge base to do that. So I, I think the industry has a significant amount of education to do, not only with uh, the consumer, but even within our own industry, our own loan officers and the people who are helping helping to uh, originate those
0: loans. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose for our, our listeners, I suppose could you could you just break down suppose, what does a typical your loan process look like in the US at the moment? Like, what are the steps that the sort of typical customer would, would go through?
2: Uh, well there is the standard you know application process which is where you you know you give all your personal information to the to the bank or the lending institution and then w- what we call processing is when they gather all the, the requisite documents needed to make a credit decision, whether that be your employment documents, bank statements, tax returns, the order title hazard insurance on the property and appraisal, that sort of thing. Uh, They'll they'll package it up into what we still call a file, although it tends to be more of a big PDF, Um, and it will move to an underwriter. That underwriter will then make the credit decision on the loan, and then from that point, it goes to closing, which in and of itself is a challenge in the mortgage industry because, uh, as Laura will probably also know, you sit there with what looks like a 1,000 pieces of paper in front of you, and you spend your entire day signing your life away.
0: No, there's um, that's definitely similarity. I've, I've bought a house relatively recently in, in the UK, and I, I definitely recognise some of those some of those yeah. uh, friction points you describe. Um, Laura, like which community? Obviously, Brian's kind of outlined, I suppose, that that typical process. But we're particularly interested to explore today, I suppose, communities which maybe are being let down by that experience, particularly in the US at the moment. So, which communities do you think are most uh, underserved by by that process today?
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly in the U.S., there there's a homeownership gap and there's actually multiple homeownership gaps. But I would say in general, um, you know, if you're low or moderate income, you're less likely to be a homeowner. And if you're a person of color, particularly black and Latino um, individuals, families and communities have much lower homeownership rates, you know, one piece I'll I'll add to, you know, uh, Brian's kind of outline of the process is the sort of the, the, the pre, I guess what I'll call the pre purchase of so that home buyer readiness part. And I think there's a lot of um preparation that happens into becoming, you know, home buyer ready. But if you come from a community or family where you know, homeownership should be the first in your family perhaps to try and buy a home or you don't have a lot of neighbors who are homeowners, you know, even recognizing that homeownership could potentially be for you is a hurdle and understanding what it really takes. I think there's still a lot of, um, you know, myths in, in what it takes to become a homeowner. Like the classic example is there's a big part of the population that still believes you need 20% down payment to become a home buyer. And in, you know, today's, you know, credit environment, I mean, we can certainly find, um, low down payment products, certainly in 10%, and even in some cases, 3% down payment. And so the, the barrier entry, I think sometimes the perception and the reality is there's not always a mismatch. And if you're coming from a community where you don't have a lot of um, trusted advisors who can advise you on the process and what it really takes, that that can be a challenge.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's obviously, you talked about like the home ownership gap, but I think you know, we also see in the data sort of income disparities, sort of gaps as well, you know, that those groups are, are also like, you know, less likely to be earning high salaries. And so, as you say, it feels like there's lots of factors kind of interrelating there. Brian, what else?
2: And if I could, on other barriers, in, in- just to speak specific to the you know, Hispanic American community, you know, you get that what I consider kind of limited English proficiency. So there becomes this kind of this language barrier because and in fact, that is the greatest barrier, to I think, to Hispanic Americans getting home ownership only second to the credit score challenges. And so, you know, a lot of your existing point of sale systems, they either have gone through simply Google Translate, and they'll just translate, you know, words over, or it's just the first part of the landing pages is in Spanish, and then they're expecting you to call an 800 number and then speak to someone live to, to, to fill out the application. But that doesn't particularly leave a great experience. Uh, and I think it becomes daunting for people to complete the mortgage transaction. So at least I know at Maxwell, we actually took our Hispanic American employees, and we use them to help design our point of sale system so that it's a much more immersive experience from front to back so that it's, it's less daunting. And then for those who kind of had this reacculturation for, you know, they kind of switch back and forth between English and Spanish, you can do the same in our POS, which you can toggle between English and Spanish. So hopefully it helps, um, you know, helps people kind of get over that barrier of, of any language deficiencies.
0: Absolutely, um, you know, Laura. Obviously, I guess you might have a, a perspective on that language barrier issue as well. Like, uh, how how much do you see that as a factor?
1: Yeah, no, it it, it certainly is. But you know, let's you know recognize that I think even for those of us who are native English speakers, as you know, right that like, you have all these documentations, a lot of technical and legal terms of what you're signing. So, I mean, I think you know, for me, I think. Um, you know, education, homebuyer counseling are really useful and important, particularly for first-time homebuyers. Um, the language access piece is is, is a big issue. Um, you know, I'll note that you know, 70% of Latinos in the U.S. are native born in the U.S., so it's it's I wouldn't say it's the majority of Latinos, but certainly there's a significant demographic that for you know, the for most people is the biggest purchase of your life you're gonna to wanna to understand what you're signing and what the process is and what's being asked of you. And so having that available in, in your native language is really important. Um, and I would say it's also beyond just the documentation. I think it's really important to have loan officers, realtors, others in the process who, who you can understand and who you can communicate with clearly through, through all of that. So it's both the people as well as the documentation. Absolutely, Trust, yeah.
2: Trusted advisors—that's what you're looking for. Exactly. Trusted advisor. Exactly.
0: I think um, another key I'd love to get your thoughts on in this space, obviously, is you know, access to credit and sort of credit scoring. Um, and obviously, they're a fundamental part of of this process. You know, what changes need to happen to take out some of the barriers and and inequalities that are in in that space, Brian?
2: Oh uh, well, there's. I think there are many. Um, I, I think what you see is that there's a, a, a large amount of Americans. I think there was a, a report out of uh, the Urban Institute, that for the 45 million Americans that are considered kind of quote unquote credit invisible, which is they have insufficient credit or no credit score at all. So uh, in fact, I think you said 45% of African-Americans consumers compared with 18% of, of uh, white consumers kind of fall into that credit invisible category. And I think part of that is um, in, many, in many communities, there's, there's a lack of access to banking. Uh, so they, they can't, they don't, in fact, there's an under probably a whole underbanked population. So they really can't establish a credit score. So then you need to start looking at alternative ways to capture credit, which is uh, paying your cell phone or mobile bill on time, uh, rent, rent payments. Uh, There's some innovative things that are now looking at your your occupation or whether or not you went to college and even where you went to college as as ways to evaluate your credit worthiness. Although, admittedly, I think those are areas that can also get into uh, discriminatory uh, practices also. So I think there needs to be watched on those too. But I I think you have to start looking at alternative ways out of the traditional three credit bureaus in the United States uh, to start evaluating
0: people's credit worthiness. Absolutely, Laura. What, what's your perspective? Yeah, no, I, I,
1: I agree with what what you know Brian outlined. There's probably a number of things we could discuss. I think you know for the big picture, I think we have to modernize how we assess credit risk, and credit scores is one component of that. Um, you know, we've had a lot of technological advances, a lot of you know a lot of texting, really exciting things, but you know the foundations of how we assess credit risk really haven't changed that much. And it really puts a lot of people at a disadvantage. The, the one item I'll add to, you know, the point that, that Brian made around, you know, access to credit, um, you know, in a lot of communities, a lot of immigrant communities, and I know in many parts, many um, Latino communities, you know, credit isn't seen as a good thing. And so it makes sense. You're not going to want your first Experience with credit to be a mortgage. Like it does make sense that you begin with maybe a credit card, maybe get a car loan, and you kind of build good credit and work your way toward applying for a mortgage loan. But in many communities, if you don't, if you can't afford it in cash, you wait. And in many ways, that should be seen as a good money manager, someone who's not getting into debt to cover their expenses. But at least in the U.S. system, without being, you know, on kind of the radar with the credit bureaus, it really puts you at a disadvantage. So, you know, someone who, um, you know, pays cash with things is basically seen almost the same as someone who mismanages credit. Um, I do think there's some some changes that are underway, and I'm hoping in the coming years we'll see big changes. One of the big ones is around the consideration of rent payments. I think that's such a no-brainer. I mean, if you've been able, if you've been paying your rent on time for some number of months or years, that to me tells me it's a really strong indication that you're going to pay your mortgage. Um, And, you know, up until pretty recently, that wasn't part of the consideration when looking at credit scores or or credit underwriting. So I do think there are changes and I'm I'm, I'm optimistic that some of those will um, expand the credit box responsibly. Um, but but there are dangers, as, as, as Ryan alluded to. And so we have to be careful that we're not embedding some of the more, um, you know, biased um, practices in, in these uh, algorithms and these systems.
0: Yeah, completely. I've got a bit of a fintech crush on a, a company called Asuzu in the US that are, as you say, using that kind of rental payments data to kind of help build that credit profile. Okay, that's been a really great scene set, I suppose, of some of the problems in the existing system. I'd love to dive now into a sort of particular case study of, you know, one company where they're trying to challenge, uh, trying to take on this inclusivity in home buying challenge. Uh, and that's, I suppose, the, the attempt made by Bank of America. So last month, they announced that they are going to be launching a zero down payment, zero closing cost mortgage product to help members of predominantly minority communities buy their first homes. So the program's called the Community Affordable Loan Solution. It's available in certain cities, including Black and or Hispanic Latino neighborhoods. And eligibility is based on income and home location uh, with no kind of minimum credit score or mortgage insurance required. So obviously, you guys are, are in the US, um, I'm guessing maybe this might have come across your desks. Uh, Brian, what did you think of this when you when you first saw it?
2: I'll be clear, and I'll, I'll speak for me and not Maxwell. I have no problem with this. Right. I, I, I do. And I, and I know there's been a lot of criticism uh, of, of the program. I think most of that criticism comes from in today's society, we, we kind of base our opinions off uh, tweets and headlines, right? So I think most people saw the, 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 the headline and made a very critical judgment of, of the program. Uh, but I think if you actually read deeply in the program, while it is, um, uh, know, probably going to be more impactful for your communities of color. Um, it's not designed specifically for the communities of color or, or, or your, uh, your, dis- it's really designed for anyone who is disenfranchised from, from the economy as a whole. Right. So I, I am all supportive of that because at, at, I am a believer of the old adage that, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. So I think we should Help help the rest of those who are disenfranchised from the rest of the economy to rise. I don't have a problem with that.
0: Good to hear, it. Laura. Is this, from your perspective, a, a good example or a bad example?
1: You know, I, I you know, it's 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 things usually aren't so sort of like clear cut, good or bad. I'll say that, you know, in big picture, I, I think it's really great what, what BVA is doing. I mean, you noted the terms: the no down payment, no cl- closing costs, no minimum credit score. Um, looking at alternative credit, like utilities and rent payment. I mean, those are all really big obstacles for a lot of folks who are trying to become homeowners for the first time. And so, I think it's great that you know B of A is in is stepping out to to address those challenges very directly. You know, for me. Um, the two concerns, and they're not really, I wouldn't even say they're, they're concerns, but the kind of two missed opportunities. First is it's a very limited program. I think it's available in like five markets. And so in terms of the reach of it, um, and maybe that maybe they're testing it first in those markets, and maybe if they do well, they'll expand over time. But you know, I would love to see a much bigger impact on that. And and the second piece that maybe is a little more of a controversial, you know, perspective, is that, you know, the the program targets um, communities of color in those five markets, not people of color. And so there is concern around gentrification that, you know, others will move into these communities to be able to take advantage of these really great terms. And at the end of the day, who's really benefiting it? Um, you know, I don't want to get too too wonky, but the program is um, developed under uh, a program called Special Purpose Credit Programme, which is um, part of the Equal Credit Opportunity Act that's, you know, regulated by by, um, financial regulators. And what the Special Purpose Credit Program allows is that a a lender may target a community that's been underserved and develop terms, marketing, um, you know, special terms for for those underserved populations without um, concern that they're going to run afoul of fair lending laws. Um, So, you know, I think B of A could have taken a, a more proactive step and targeted um, people of colour, which is where the big hub ownership gap is. Um, but they chose to focus more on communities, because I think that's a little more, um, it's a little more acceptable, I think, in the general population. Um, but there is some risk there that who, at the end of the day, is going to really benefit from this programme?
0: Absolutely. And I suppose, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a, an interesting question, I suppose, is how can you avoid products that are designed with a specific audience or community in mind, like how do you stop them being exploited by communities or people that don't really need them per se? Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Well, I I mean, I would point back to the special purpose credit program, which has been around for a long time. It's been historically underused, but in the last couple of years, regulators have made an effort to um, issue some clarifying, clarifying regulations and guidance on sort of what's allowed and what's permitted I think historically, a lot of lenders had some discomfort in targeting certain populations and then being, you know, accused of, you know, fair health, fair lending violations. And I think, you know, w- when you have unclear regulations, I think that's a fair concern. Um, but I think what we've seen in the last couple of years, there's been more of an of an opening from, you know, regulators in the U.S. for lenders to offer these types of products. And we're beginning to see it. I mean, BVA's. is one of the most recent examples, but there are other banks that in the last year have launched similar types of initiatives, all slightly different with their terms. Um, and so I think that's a really great tool. I think sometimes though, um, you know, lenders may still be a little hesitant and maybe it's their legal teams to to use the full parameters of the program. They still might kind of keep it a little bit smaller just to
0: be sure that they're not crossing any lines. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Brian, do you have any any thoughts?
2: Yeah, and and I, Laura already mentioned it that I know there seems to be concern where where people look at you know particularly targeting a group, um, but I'd like to remind folks that we 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 already have that in our industry, right? We we have loans that are already specifically targeted to to veterans, for example, or specifically targeted to rural housing and and agriculture. So targeting already exists. I think I think people tend to get agitated when all of a sudden it begins to target an underserved group of people, I think, and I'll try to keep it as apolitical as possible. So maybe I should just leave it at that.
0: I think that, that was very well said, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the other angles I saw on this that I thought was interesting was you know, that there was some, I think, you know, I don't know how widespread, but there was some distrust as well from from the black community you know, themselves about you know why are they being targeted by this product? You know, Is it right that they're having a product that's kind of Especially creative for them rather than just being having you know access to existing products broadened um so I suppose yeah did you guys see much of that like how how do you think we could build trust for, for communities in these types of products that they're not sort of being given something that's separate from what everyone else can experience and they may be sort of inferior in some way
1: yeah well I'll, I'll jump in and just say I think it's really important to acknowledge the you know sad history in the U.S. of, of lending discrimination, it, you know, goes back, you know, generations. Um, there's a number of examples of how, you know, discriminatory practices were embedded in our policies. I mean, it really wasn't until the Fair Housing Act in 1968 that lending housing, you know, d- lending discrimination housing was specifically outlawed. Um, and then you have more recent examples during the foreclosure crisis in the U.S., um there are a lot of examples of black and latino neighborhoods and communities being targeted by predatory loan products and you saw a, a disproportionate loss of both home ownership and wealth in black and latino communities and so you know i think it's important they from long time history, as well as more recent history, there are a lot of examples and, and, and reasons why I think it's it's not unreasonable for certain populations of communities to distrust our financial system. Um, you know, but I think, I think building that trust is really important. I mean, Latinos are 19% of the population. Um, African American community is about 12% of the population in the US. So you have nearly a third of the country is Latino or Black. And you can't have a third of the economy mistrusting our financial mainstream. I mean, there, there's a lot of um, you know reasons for that just for the health of our national economy. So I think when you're thinking about products or practices, where you're trying to, in a positive way, target historically underserved communities, It's really important that you engage with those communities directly, really look at the data, but also talk with folks to understand what are the gaps, what are the reasons. Um, And I think it's also important to have some transparency. And so all of these great products like Bank of America, for example, you know, this new product we just talked about. I hope that they and other lenders, as they unveil these types of products, that they are transparent with their data. They tell us how many loans that they actually do do they do them, you know, who do they provide those loans to? And how do those loans perform over time? And if it didn't work as well as you intended, how are you going to tweak it? Like what what are the reasons? And if it's working really well, how is it going to be expanded and replicated? Um so I think both engaging really directly with the community, but also being transparent on on the progress that you're making are are key ways to to build that trust.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um Brian, I suppose I think yeah, what, what Laura's touching on is really important, this idea of like, trying to build that engagement with a community. So you know, what happens when you try and build an inclusive product without actually consulting the, the people that you're targeting?
2: It'll fail. <laughs> it's, pre- it's pretty simple. It, 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 I think it will, it will fail. Um, I, I, it was actually, and this, this is why I think our, our internet browsers clearly track us, right? Uh, so this, this morning popping up in my news feed was an article from uh, Forbes, Uh, about a bank in the Minneapolis area called Sunrise Bank. Um, And it was specifically about how it serves its local community, which is a historically underserved immigrant community, the Hmong out of of Southeast Asia. And so the whole article was about how they worked directly with the community to build mortgage products that fit the needs of that particular community while also still trying to meet the needs of the bank because the bank still has to have a a return on capital. Um, And as the bank president said, he said, had we not worked with the community and also hired these individuals into the bank as our tellers and our collectors, like the products would have failed and would not have met the needs of the community. Yes, if you do not meet the needs of your community by engaging with your community, then you're going to fail, plain and simple.
0: Awesome. Good good place to round up this section. We're just going to take a quick pause here. We'll be back very shortly. The rise of data-driven financial services has opened up new ways for banks and lenders to better connect with their customers and offer exceptional user experiences. But to take advantage of these opportunities, we need to break away from traditional constraints. A new report from Tink shows how open banking can pave the way for faster and more responsible lending practices that are robust on risk and financially inclusive. To find out how Tink can help you transform lending, read the full report at tink.com forward slash 11FS. In the final part of the show, we want to look to the future and imagine how we'd like this market to change. So getting a little bit more optimistic, hopefully. So, Laura, how do we get the entire system to be more inclusive so that targeted products are no longer needed? What's What does that future look like?
1: Yeah, that, well, that's, that's a really big question. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I am an optimist and I, I do think there's a lot of promise in technology and um, advances and, and how we approach things. But I think you need both the the technology and the platforms and systems as well as the um, the approach. And so I, I noted earlier around how I think we need to modernize how we assess credit risk. You know, I think we, we talked about the credit score example. You know, another one is even how we look at something like, like income. And, you know, in the US, the, the way, you know, mortgage credit risk is assessed, it really has a bias for someone who has been in the same job, W 2 earner. You know, for many, many years, and our economy is changing more and more. People are self-employed. You have people with multiple jobs, maybe in the gig economy, seasonal work, and you know, I don't think our mortgage underwriting process is caught up with that. So I think there are a number of examples for modernizing it. But I I think at the end of the day, if I if I had to focus on one area, I would really focus on um, diversity in the industry. I think if we had more underserved communities represented, you know, Black, Latino and other communities represented in the C-suites of, you know, the financial services industry and also as entrepreneurs starting, you know, fintechs to address what they see as market gaps, I think we would see a lot of change, you know, in the positive. And, And I do see some progress there, but I think there's still a way to go.
0: I'm going to keep on with the big questions. Apologies. But I suppose, yeah, what, that, I agree. Like, I think that diversity point is key. What do you think needs to change to enable that? Like, like what's stopped us getting to that so far, do you think?
1: You know, I <laughs> I think, um, I mean, I'll, spoke, I'll focus more and more on the traditional financial services industry, you know, banks and lenders. I think they need to change how they approach hiring. I mean, I think, you know, they've been doing things the same way. It's a pretty conservative industry. It's been largely dominated, you know, by by white men, and you know, people tend to hire those who are familiar, known entities, even if they don't know them personally. If they have similar types of resumes, where they, you know, um, went to similar schools, are from similar communities, that just, you know, it, it's it's um, you know, it's it's an unconscious bias that a lot of folks have, and so I think expanding how recruitment is done. And really focusing, um, even especially in some of these large banks, if you look at their diversity numbers, oftentimes at the lower levels, you'll actually see pretty good representation. But something happens along the pipeline and people fall out. And suddenly when you get to the more senior executive levels, that's when you see the big discrepancies. And so I think banks and lenders need to both change how they approach hiring, um, but also be a little more intentional about how they look at the talent that's already in their ranks and helping to develop that talent to to um, to move up and advance in the company.
0: Absolutely, Brian. I suppose, yeah, from your perspective, is exclusivity or, or targeting of particular sort of these groups always going to be needed? Can you see a future with a slightly sort of more universal level playing field where everyone just uses the same products? What's what's your what's your future t- future ball of predictions telling you?
2: I I feel like that's probably a question you could have asked somebody in the 60s, and they would have told you, of course, the U.S. is going to be on equal footing by the 80s or something. And here here we are in 2022, and um, I don't believe we are on equal footing across the society. So um, I I don't want to seem negative, but I'm I'm not sure it will happen kind of in my lifetime, right? Uh, But the but what I can do is to ensure that it happens in the in the in the lifetime of my heirs, right? That that I can just every day try to build a society that's a little better than I than it was yesterday. Um, but I, I think what Laura hit on most importantly was, you know, we talk about these particular products and how do we get people onto the mortgage ladder, um, but. At the heart of it is good, well-paying jobs, and I, I think it, it's you know we can we can figure out how we have look at people's credit and how we can create uh, different products. But if people don't really have good, well-paying, stable jobs, then they're still not going to get a home. So I, I would agree that I think the industry, and by industry I mean I probably everybody's industry, right? FinTech, mortgage banking. Uh, we all need to take a look at our hiring practices and how we. Uh, uh, promote and invest in the people we work with. Um, I, you know, and I think Laura also hit on you know, confirmation bias, uh, not to take a swipe at uh, uh, you know, Kate, you, you and your colleagues. I, I think the fintech industry is probably one of the worst when it comes to kind of hiring within its kind of little insular community of if you did not come from a certain school, or if you, if you don't have a, a certain, you know, maybe venture capital firm on your resume, you are not gonna make it to the next level. Um, so I, I, I think those are all areas that we have to, to have, can continue to address. But and then lastly, if, if I can take a little more time, is that, you know, in the mortgage industry, what perpetuates this whole cycle is the secondary market? A lender makes a loan, sells a loan, replenishes their capital, makes another loan, and that's the perpetual cycle. But right now, the secondary market is not buying loans kind of, of of the the type we're talking about today. So really, unless you change who wants to invest in these loans, at the, at the end of the day, you're not going to originate enough of these type of loans to in, uh, uh, effectively impact the communities that they are meant to target. So I, I and and part and part of that is changing here in the United States. Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, as well as as the uh, private market, which is Basically, Wall Street um, into how they how they view these types of loans.
0: What do you think needs to change to make that happen?
2: Um, I I think part of that is just as we were talking about, uh, you know, how do you evaluate people's individual credit? You should really talk about how these loans themselves are credit worthy, investable loans, and how they and how these are still impactful to their communities. Because I, I think if you were to ask. Uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, or even Wall Street—they are—they don't see these as investable uh, loans. They don't—they don't see them as credit-worthy loans, and so I think you really have to change an entire mindset of the secondary market.
0: Big problems to solve, absolutely. Yeah. Big problem. Yeah. Big, big problem. But yeah, you know, as you say, lots of positive change happening in the industry, lots of, lots of things. I mean, lots of our listeners, I suppose, work in fintechs, in other sort of you know, technology services that are trying to make changes, trying to build and launch products. I suppose, what is the one thing that you would urge people listening to this to kind of take into consideration most of all when they're trying to create products and services that appeal to a diverse user base, Laura?
1: I think I mean beyond the the diversity representation issue already noted I think just really taking a close look at where the gaps exist and who's not being you know what segments aren't being served today and and really focus on on filling that gap and I think you know Brian's point is really key cuz you can develop a really innovative you know tool a product but at least in the U.S., if you don't have capital markets kind of behind it, it's always going to be kind of this little niche pilot, you know, kind of onesie twosie approach. Like If you really want to test something and expand it, you have to get buy-in. And so I think really looking at what are the gap, what's the gap, testing it. And if you see something with promise, figure out how do I get buy-in from either Wall Street or Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, because that's where... Um, you know, the, the real change happens. Otherwise, you're going to have these really small portfolio products that help some people, don't get me wrong, but they're not going to move the needle at
0: scale. Absolutely interesting. Yeah, Brian, what, what one thing would you encourage people designing products and services to, to focus on if they've got the aspiration of a diverse user base?
2: Um, kind of to ensure the product or service that you've created is really informed by the demographic that it's intended to serve, which means in engaging that, particularly, that particular community or communities.
0: Um, and is that something that you guys do, Maxwell? How, how do you approach that? Uh,
2: yeah, yeah, yes, we do. Yes, we do. And I, I think just so like when I'm describing with our um, our Spanish language point of sale, it's we spe- in this instance we went to specifically to our Hispanic American employees to help us do that. Uh, but as we are beginning to develop our own products that we want to roll out into the marketplace, then yes, we we engage with those particular communities to to try to develop products that best meet their needs. But at the same time. Um, as I mentioned earlier, and, and Laura, I, I, I appreciate uh, your comments too. Um, engaging with the secondary market because if 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 we don't have the capital to kind of perpetuate the products, then uh, I think Laura's statement that it just doesn't move the needle is accurate. You you will you will impact in a positive manner a small group of people, but really we're trying to uh, effectuate much broader change.
0: Absolutely. I suppose I'm keen that we have so we've talked about lots of problems. I'm keen to try and end on a on a positive note, almost, I suppose, like, what what gives you the most hope? I suppose when you look at the changes that we have seen, the things that have changed, like, what are you most hopeful about, Laura?
1: You know, th- there are actually a number of things. Like, I'm, I'm really encouraged by recent changes to consider rent, rent payment history, for example. Um, you know, I'm encouraged by, we, we talked about the Bank of America product, but I noted that that's not the only special purpose credit program out there. And right now, the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the regulator, has had them issue what's called equitable housing plans. Um, and both each enterprise has laid out what their plans are to expand access to to mortgage credit, and specifically called out ways that they can, you know, support and advance special purpose credit programs to target particularly underserved communities. And so, I think there's a lot of you know, exciting things that are that are beginning that are underway. It just, you know, these things take time to, to see what the fruit of the labor. So I'm, I'm encouraged and hopeful that all of these entities will report on and share, you know, their findings and what they're learning and what the impact has been.
0: Awesome. Brian, is there anything that you've spotted like initiatives or changes that, that you're excited about that you think you're hopeful about? Yeah, I, I
2: well, I think something similar. I am encouraged by, you know, Bank of America, I think and JP Morgan and others who who have done something similar. Um, but you know, if if I have to say that I'm just kind of encouraged on a daily basis, um, you know, even for me, like I'm I'm encouraged by my own colleagues every day, right? Because everybody comes to work every day trying to effectuate change and build a better industry. And like I'm encouraged being on this on this podcast here and and speaking with someone like Laura, right? So I'm encouraged that I think there are people in the industry who are trying to push it forward on a daily basis because without, without them, I think we would be the same place where we were in 1980.
0: Absolutely. So problems, but also potential solutions. Fantastic. Well, I could chat about this all day, but I suspect I should probably let you guys get back to um, challenging <laughs> challenging the order of things. So thank you so much for, for joining me. Where can people find out more about you and your companies, Laura?
1: Um, so my organization, you can find us on our website, unidosus.org. That's U-N-I-D-O-S-U-S.org. And you can find me on LinkedIn where I post sort of my opinions on various
0: things happening in the industry. Brilliant. I'll definitely be checking it out. Brian, what about you?
2: Uh, You can find us at highmaxwell.com. That's H-I-M-A-X-W-E-L-L.com. And uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn.
0: Brilliant. And you can find me at Kate Moody on LinkedIn or on Twitter at k8.moody. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and helps others to find this show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media, just search for 11FS or FinTech Insider or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thanks very much. Goodbye.